Uh, God, we can live for a purpose. God, you give us identity, you give us a purpose. God, you give us a new name. Uh, son and daughter of you. Lord, as we continue in prayer this morning, God, as we continue to bring our praises and thanksgiving to you, Lord, as we bring our prayer requests and those things that are in our hearts to you, I pray that you have lost this time. Uh, Lord, we just thank you that we can come together as a church family and lift these things to you. Father, you say that we are forgiven, not because of any act, any talent, any gift, any skill on our own, but Father, we are forgiven solely because of Jesus Christ and his shed blood and broken body on the cross. So Father, I pray this morning that we would be a body that forgives. Father, deal with us, deal with our hearts. If there's any unforgiveness in any of us, Lord God, remove it. Just take it away, Lord. Help us to be willing to surrender to you. Father, we can't be totally free if we're in unforgiveness or anger or resentment. And Father, we want to be free because you have told us that we are free. Father, we thank you for your redemptive grace this morning. In Jesus' name. Lord, as we go into time of silent prayer we just want to pray about a few things together firstly we just think of those that we know uh, lord you're going through difficulties and hard times right now we just want to lift them to you we're going to do that just for a few moments
Lord, we also think of those who don't know you. We need a Savior. I'm just going to lift them up just for a few moments now. ask you to draw them to you. through us this week. May we be your hands and feet uh, in this community. And Lord, we want to pray specifically and ask you how you would use us this week to build your kingdom. Let's do it. Dissolve like snow, the sun 
Matthew 26, 26 through 28 this morning. It says, as they were there eating, this is the Last Supper, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. And he broke it into pieces and gave it to them, the disciples saying, this is, uh, take this and eat it, for this is my body. We're going to take this this morning. Let's take it together. took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it and he gave it to them and said each of you drink from it for this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people it is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many let's take this juice this morning to remembrance of what our Lord has done for us God again we thank you for your love for us God, we thank you for the price that you paid, uh, Lord, in order that our sins uh, may be forgiven. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, that your son Jesus didn't just stay in the grave, 
didn't stay on the cross, Father. That, uh, Lord, he was risen. And uh, Lord, we have a hope and a future uh, because of that. And we know that we will spend eternity with you. Guys, we continue on at this service. I pray that you would uh, bless the message. Aaron, as he comes in and gives us the word. And God, I pray that you would challenge us uh, this morning as we hear your truth. In Jesus' name. Morning. My name is Cassie, and welcome to the Christian Church of Estes Park. In just a few minutes, we will get into the message. But first, I'd like to draw your attention to the program you should have received when you came in today. Inside that program is a connection card that looks just like this. If you haven't done so already, will you please begin filling out this card? If you're a regular attender or a member here at CCEP, you can just give us your name and email address and any information that may have changed. If this is your first or second time with us, welcome! We're so glad you're here. I'd like to ask you to share as much information as you feel comfortable sharing, and be sure to mark the box on the side that says first or second time guest. If you are a first-time guest with us this morning, we have a gift for you. It is a book called The Greatness Principle. You can stop by the Welcome Center after the service and get your free copy today. And as you work your way down the card, you'll see a question at the bottom that says, how did you hear about CCEP? We'd love to know how you found out about us. One of the primary reasons we ask you to complete the front of this connection card each week is because we believe God has a next step for you to take today. And by filling out the front of this card, you're letting God know you're prepared to take some next steps on the back as the service progresses. We will share more next steps with you during today's message, so hang on to your connection card and we'll collect them at the end of the service during the offering. And speaking of the offering, inside your program or in the seat back pocket in front of you, you'll find an offering envelope. If you came prepared to give today, you'll want to fill that out and again, we'll worship through giving at the end of today's service. As you're filling out your connection card, let me share with you a few announcements about some of the great things that are happening here at the Christian Church of Estes Park. We will be hosting a paper drive October 6th through October 27th to benefit Crossroads. Please bring in toilet paper, paper towels, Kleenex, and other household paper necessities to CCEP and help us build the largest paper mountain in the Estes Valley, or even the world. When you pack shoebox gifts with Operation Christmas Child, you're sending joy and blessing children all over the world. Through your simple act of kindness, children experience the love of Jesus, are discipled through the local church, and are empowered to reach their families and communities with the good news of Jesus Christ. These announcements and other additional announcements can be found on the yellow sheet inside your bulletin. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to talk to one of the staff or contact the office. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Very good. Well, good morning. Welcome to the Christian Church of Estes Park for Disciples of Jesus that build Disciples of Jesus. My name is Aaron, and I get to bring this uh, final message in our identity series to you. So I'm glad that you're here today, brave the snowy snow and all of that. So I know it's starting to come down, so we'll just get into it. Oh, you know what? I am going to
Well, while we're getting that set up, let me just uh, fill you in. We're just going to recap. This is our last one, sixth week in this series on identity, in which we talked about, so I think, some very important things, uh, especially in light of uh, how our world is now, I think there's a lot of misinformation that have hurt a lot of people and not really understanding who we are. And so I wanted to talk about in God's Word, really uh, who the Word says that we are. And so this series really was for the believer, for the Christian, um, for those that uh, may be here or listening online who uh, are not yet uh, members of God's family, the church. Uh, um, we're glad that you're here. Welcome. We'd like to, super happy to have you. I hope that you took this uh, series as an opportunity uh, look, you know, kind of peer behind the curtain. What is it that, that uh, the Bible teaches, that Christians believe? Uh, what does it mean to be a Christian? And for those of us who are in Christ, a part of God's family, I hope that uh, this series has been helpful. Uh, really speaking truth into where our culture kind of misses it, uh, they just don't know. And uh, God has given us an amazing identity. We started six weeks ago talking about where identity comes from, uh, that I am who God says I am. I mean, the truest thing that will ever be said about me or you is what God says about us, Right? And so uh, we're not who we say we are. Uh, I'm not good because I say I am. And there are days where I feel like a super Christian, and then there are days I feel like a horrible Christian, all right? But I'm not a Christian only when I feel like it, right? I am who God says I am. I'm not who the world says I am. I don't draw my identity by the opinions of the rest of culture. Uh, the, the culture, I've, I've been called all kinds of amazing things over these last few weeks uh, by some people in the culture to have a, a wrong idea about uh, who I am. But the nice thing about it is they used to be able to identify me as far as um, Aaron, but uh, I died to that person. And I'm a new person in Christ. And they don't get to identify me. The culture doesn't get to tell me who I am. Only God gets to tell me who I am. And therefore, we find our identity in him. So I am who God says I am. Then we talked about if I am who God says I am, we talked about then our ethics, that good is what God says is good. Right? That, that Christian ethics are based upon God's morals. And God's morals are the spiritual laws that God has put into his spiritual creation. Just like there's natural laws that operate the natural creation he made, there are spiritual laws that operate his spiritual creation. We call those morals. And Christian ethics rightly reflect God's morals. And so as far as the church goes, that God has blessed us. He has revealed what those spiritual principles are to us in God's word. And so we don't have to argue back and forth about saying, I, this is what I think is right, or this is what I think is right. God has revealed that to us. And so as Christians, we have the opportunity and the great privilege of seeing moral truth as it really is and living accordingly. That good is what God says is good. And then we talked about in that that God created us, that God reveals in his word that he made us male and female in his image. And when God created people, he created us to reflect him Men in their masculinity and women in their femininity. And those two genders are beautiful and wonderful and complementary. And they both reveal a special aspect of God's divine nature. And, and how God made us male and female. We talked about marriage. You can't really understand marriage unless you understand how God designed us male and female. Because one of the only two institutions that God created was family. Right? There was only two in all of creation Whoa, that God created was, was the family. That God made, uh, God made them male and female. And it says, in the image of God, you came. Therefore, uh, that the man should leave his father and mother, and the two will be become one flesh. That's the context of how God made us male and female, in the context of family. And so in family, there are roles. Some are masculine roles, like the husband and the father. And some are feminine roles, like the wife and the mother. And, uh, and how we fulfill those in an amazing way reflects God wonderfully. 
And the purpose of family, then, is to bear God's image. That's the main point of marriage. Not to make us happy, not to fulfill us. Those are all, uh, uh, not even to, to procreate, right? Not to leave a legacy. Those are all benefits of marriage and good marriages. But the purpose of marriage was to reflect God, to bear his image. In the image of God, he made us, male and female. I think it's an amazing thing. And then last week we talked about is in the marriage is that foundation then for the rest of family where parents are, are able to, to be able to raise children in this amazing high love and high structure environment so they can grow and, and flourish and be everything that God created them to be. That's an amazing thing. That, that first structure when we honor God with how he designed marriage and family, how marriages and families are so much better. Now, this is not the traditional way of how things have done or not the modern way, but God's way. And we honor God, it helps us all. And today we're going to talk about the second institution that God created. Out of all the things, God didn't tell us how to do government, right? He says you can do government however you want. People can do whatever they want in government, right? Uh, he told us how, he didn't tell us how to do business. He didn't say structure, business is supposed to be structured this way. There's supposed to be corporations or anything like that. He didn't tell us. He said you can make those. He didn't tell us how to design clubs, Right? All of those things, he said, you humans, figure it out. Do it the best that you want, right? I'll give you some principles and figure it out. But he did make family. And the other institution that he made was church. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, is God, how he designed church. What is the structure of church? What is design? What is it for? How are we put together? Now, the last time that uh, we're going to get to go through this uh, is, uh, is our memory verse for the series, Galatians 2.20. And it really sets the foundation for all of this. The reason I find my identity in Christ is because who I used to be died in a very real and profound way. When I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, when I expressed my faith in Him and received His grace, when I was believed and I repented and I confessed and I was baptized as I'm discipled, right? All of those things that God says I am now alive in Christ. And so this theological truth, our new identity in Him, really comes from, is, is well summarized in this passage. And that's why we chose it as our memory verse for this series. And so hopefully if you've been here for the last uh, six weeks, it's starting to become more natural to you. If you're with us the first time today, don't worry, it's not hard. We'll get a good start with it and uh, be able to make sure that we're setting our heart and our mind on God's Word before we get into God's Word. All right, so here we go. Say it along with me. Three, two, one. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. I know we're small today, right, because everybody's afraid of riding on icy roads, but, uh, but be alive today. We are in the body of Christ, right? This is amazing. This is the truth that you have a new life in Christ. Okay, say it along with me, hero. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. All right, last time to test ourselves. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. Now, awesome. The identity we have in Christ is not something just for the hereafter. That I was crucified with Christ in some spiritual weird way, and then someday when Jesus comes back and I go to heaven, then I can act like his child? No, it's like the life I live now, the life I now live in the body, 
This world, I live now by faith in the Son of God. That God really lives in me. That's, we get to start living the eternal life today. Isn't that amazing? The eternal life that we have, we've been born again into a whole new kingdom, a whole different way of existence. And that does change our families. And it does change how we operate in the rest of this world because our identity impacts how we, how we behave, doesn't it? And today we're going to talk about how God brought us together here in this second wonderful institution, the church. So if you have your Bibles, please join me. We're going to be in the book of uh, 1 Timothy. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1, actually. And why there? Well, Timothy, 1 Timothy is one of three pastoral epistles. An epistle is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to Timothy. It was written to him to explain how to do church. Right? There's one of three pastoral epistles. There's the other one is 2 Timothy. Paul wrote Timothy back again later on in his life. He also wrote Titus, another uh, disciple of his that he was raising up to carry on the, the mantle of leadership in the church for the next generation. And so Paul uh, writes this letter to Timothy. Timothy was in Ephesus when he wrote that. It'll become important later on. As the, but remember Ephesus? Ephesus was that city there that was a Turkey, modern-day Turkey, but back then they called it Asia. It was the center of goddess worship. Uh, they had that, one of the eight wonders of the world, the temple there. That was the, uh, the goddess Artemis, and um, it was a pagan city. It was really awful, and uh, the gospel showed up. And uh, Paul and Silas, they preached the gospel. And God works in that, and then the church is planted. And in that very center, the very hub of pagan worship, grew one of the most powerful and influential churches of the early of the first century, uh, the church of Ephesus. And when Paul leaves after having a miraculous ministry there, he leaves the church under the care of the elders there, one of which was his disciple Timothy, whom he now writes this letter, How the Church is to be Operated. So that's why I chose this book to talk about how church is structured. That's the purpose of this book. And so hopefully that gives you enough time to have turned to 1 Timothy. And so uh, we'll get into, as we start reading through 1 Timothy, there are going to be three truths about church that we're going to pick up today. And the first truth is that the church is a family. It is a family. And that's why we talked about family first. You can't understand church if you don't understand family. Let me prove it to you. Look at uh, verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true Son in the faith, grace and mercy and peace from God our Father and Lord Je- Christ Jesus our Lord. You know that uh, Paul calls Timothy a son, that we have a family relationship even though they biologically weren't served. Why? Because in the early church, Christians called each other by brother, sister, uh, more than anything else. They, they use family terms to discuss the relationship that we have with one another. That The church wasn't just like a family. The church is a family. In fact, it, Look at what Paul says just a few chapters later in chapter 5 when he talks about Timothy, how he's supposed to, to interact with other church members as, as, a, as a pastor. He says this, Don't rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. And the church is supposed to operate like family because the church is family. In fact, uh, Jesus even said, remember when uh, uh, Jesus' mom and brothers came to, to go get him because they were worried about some of the things he was teaching? Uh, so one of the disciples came and said, hey, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside. They're ready to get you. What did Jesus say? He said, oh, who are my real brother and brothers? Aren't they here? The ones who do the will of God? 
Jesus calls us family. In fact, Jesus uh, means this so much. He says, listen, how, how we're supposed to pray when the disciples say, how should we pray? We, these sinful, small humans, you being God, right? Can you teach us how to pray? And what does Jesus tell us and how to pray? He starts with our Father, who's in heaven. May your name be kept holy. That, that the church is this amazing family. That's what we were called to be. That's, that's who we are. Right? And so we, we see a couple chapters earlier in, in uh, Tim, 1 Timothy 3. Right? After Timothy gives some Ill- description of how the church is to be structured, how it's to be ordered, right? What you're going to see is very similar to a family. It says this. It says, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing these, these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how God's people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. You know what that says? That church is God's household. Right? Some people think the church, the building, as God's house. That's wrong. This is just a building. The church can be anywhere. Right? The early church didn't have cathedrals and, and buildings like this. Were they any less God's household? Do you know my family is my family even when we go to somebody else's house? Right? The church is God's household. And that means something profound. I mean, we're God's household because he tells us we are. But that means that the church isn't just God's household. We're God's household. You and me, us here together. Think about how amazing that is. I mean, the apostle John, when he was writing his, his epistle right, to the churches there in Asia, when he first writes, he has this, it just just dawns on him. It just, he's so amazed by how profound that is. He says, he said, we are God's children and that is what we really are. Like, this is amazing. Because I know me and I know some of you and it's pretty amazing that God would call us his kids. That was a joke, by the way. God calls us his children. That's fantastic. Now, I think this, why are we God's kids? Because he tells us we are. We're God's household because we are who God says we are. That's why. Paul even struggles with this. He, he, he discusses this profound mystery even in this letter. I mean, look at verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 and following. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. We're not God's family because we deserved it. (laughs) Have you ever felt like you were the worst sinner in the world? There are days where I feel kind of bad. I don't think I've ever felt like the worst sinner in the world. I'm always like, well, there's always Kim Jong-un, right? But there are days where I'm like, man, I'm, I've really messed up. I don't know, acting like God's kid. But just because I didn't act like it doesn't mean that's not who I am, right? I am God's child because he says I am. I was born again into his family. It's not based upon my feeling. And it's not based upon, the rest of the world can say, Aaron, you're not God's kid. They could say it but it doesn't make it true. I mean, you could tell my son Thomas, you could tell him, you're not your dad's kid. You were adopted, right? There's, you could be mean to him, all that kind of stuff, but it wouldn't be true, would it? 
I mean, even if he was adopted, he'd still be my son. He is my kid. We are God's children. We are who God says we are. We're part of his family. And that has implications for us. Wonderful, beautiful implications. See, my sonship isn't based upon my feelings or anything else. It's based upon God. And therefore, as a member of God's household, we have, uh, we have an obligation to agree with God. Right? It's his house, his rules. Good is what God says is good. That's why in the church, we have a standard. We say the Bible is our standard of faith and practice. The Bible is going to tell us things that are good that we're going to disagree with. They're going to go against our culture and our conscience, aren't they? Every single one of us. If you never read the word of God and are offended, then I doubt you're actually reading the word of God. Because God doesn't tell you what you always want to believe. God tells us what is true and what is right and what is good so that we know. Was there ever a child born that just knew how to be uh, perfect? Jesus, right? He's the only one. Other than that, there's never been a child that came out of the womb that was just like, I know what is right and wrong, and I will always make the wise and best choices here and out forever. Never existed. There are some better kids, and there are some kids that are real stinkers, right? But every kid needs to be corrected. Every kid needs to have their parents tell them, hey, this is what's good and this is what is bad, right? That's part of the job of parents. Do parents do that because they want to just boss their kids around and make them feel bad? No, they, they do it because it's good for the child to know what is right. And God tells us in his word what is right and good. It says in the word that there's going to come a time that people in culture, the culture will say what God says is good, they'll say is evil. And, and what God says is evil, the culture will say is good, and they'll believe it. Has that time come? Yeah. And it's come many times throughout history. Let's not forget, before Sodom and Gomorrah were burnt to a crisp, it says, in Genesis, it says there that the, the people there all did what they thought was right in their own eyes. And they, did, they were calling evil things good, and they believed that they were good. And good things that God says are right, they called evil. It was the same way before the flood. It is the same way today. People, our moral compasses are off. And so the word of God tells us there's a way to live. And I'll tell you, there's been through this series, I know that I've gotten to rub some of you. Uh, the word of God has gotten to rub some of you in a way that made you uncomfortable. That's great. Don't despise that. It means that the word of God is working. It means that you actually came, were open to hear what God had to say, and now he's correcting you so that you can live a better way, a much better life. Today, maybe there will be some things that might cause offense or, or to cause us to be uncomfortable. That's okay. The way that our culture is designed is leading our culture to death. And God has for his children a better way, a better way for his household. So we start by saying a church is a family. We begin by saying, God, what you say is right is right, and what you say is wrong is wrong, and how you say things are supposed to work or to work, and our job is to trust you and obey you. Right? Do what you ask. Church is an amazing family. The Bible is our standard. And because of this, we find that the church must act as God's family. We're not just God's family. We've got to act as God's family. And think how amazing that is. That the purpose of family is to, uh, is to reflect God, God's image. That's the purpose of family, the main purpose. How much more is that for us, the church? We're a holy family. We have a great obligation to reflect God. That way, we, it matters how we act. Right? We have to bear his image in a right and good way. And we talked about last week how God is a high structure, high love God. He gives us lots of grace, but he also has a lot of expectations of what is right and wrong. He's a moral God. 
Well, the church needs to be high structure, high love as well, right? That's what we do. We, we want to be a high structure, high love church. That we are exactly who God says that we are and we reflect his nature well. That's why in the body of Christ, the culture here needs to be one in which we love one another, in which one there are there is expectations and there are, there are roles and responsibilities. Right? This is how God made the church. And so God... Uh, through the Holy Spirit, had Paul write about that. Starting in chapter 2, I want you to see how he talks about, first, how the church is a high-love organization, a high-love family. Verse 8, it says, Therefore, oh, sorry, verse 1, he says, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed as a herald and an apostle, and I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a true faithful teacher to the Gentiles. You see the love dripping off of that as our identity? I mean, he starts this whole, this whole book on how the church is structured. He says, listen, we start with love. There's so much grace in this. God says my church should be a place uh, uh, known as a family, as a loving family. We're supposed to pray for, for all people. And he even talks about, he says, those that are in authority. You know who's in authority when, when Paul wrote this? Crazy guys like Nero who were dipping Christians in oil and lighting them on fire. Do you know how hard it is to pray for somebody wicked like that? I mean, oftentimes, if you're like me, my prayers for like people like that it would tend to be selfish. You'd be like, God, torch them. That's my prayer for them. Show them your wrath so that they respect you, right? Teach them to fear you, God, right? But God says, no, no, no. I want all people to be saved. If we can pray for our enemies, like Jesus said, the world, they said, hey, it's easy to love your own friends. If you want to be God's child, try loving your enemies because that's the character of God's family. If we can love our enemies, if we can pray for those who persecute us, how much more should we be able to pray and love those who are our brothers and sisters in faith? I mean, this needs to be a place of grace. God graced us. He saved us from all of our sins, all of the, our rebellion, all of that, and continues to do so. The church needs to be a place of deep grace. Are we sometimes in church going to do stupid things? Yeah, we're God's children. Children do dumb things, right? That's why they need parents. Right? Have you ever been to a child care? Kids do dumb stuff, right? I mean, you see like daycare workers, they're saints. They're really like, hey, Jimmy, stop eating dirt, right? You know, don't uh, stick that, that paste up your nose, right? <laughs> and, uh, best not to be taking that, those Legos and swallowing them, right? Kids do crazy things, not because they just don't know. Right? And sometimes children are misbehaved and they throw tantra tantrums and all those things. And how are we supposed to care for children? Do we supposed to be with an iron fist? No, we, we, with love, we help them. I'll tell you, in the body of Christ, we're God's children. There are some times that we're going to do stupid things. This is a safe place to fail. You don't lose the love of God or your brothers and sisters in Christ when you do something stupid. This is a safe place. Right? This is an amazing space. We're supposed to be known as the house of love. 
But not only amongst one another, Jesus said, the world will know you're genuinely my disciples by how you love one another. He tells us that in John 17. But he also says that we're supposed to be loving the rest of the world. Like when a great family moves onto your block, right? And, and their kids are helpful and the family's helpful. They're good neighbors. That's who we're supposed to be in our community. We're not supposed to be that house on the edge of the block that's trashy and bad and the kids are hooligans, right? And everybody's just like, oh, stay away from them. That's not the way the church and family that God's supposed to be. We're supposed to be known for our love and our acts of charity and kindness and goodness. Our community, Estes Park, needs to be blessed because we're here. That's what we're called to be. High love. Seeking the good for all people. Gracing those that don't grace us back. Loving those who do not love us back. High love because our God has called us to a family of love. He loved us and gave himself for us. And not just are we a church that is filled with love and we're called to be a high-love church, but God also gives us, he gives us roles and responsibilities. There's a therefore, if you see there in verse uh, 8, it says, because we have all of this love, we're supposed to have structure. That's what the therefore is about. Now he's talking about how the church is supposed to act. Because we've received God's grace, because we are a community of love, there are Roles and responsibilities. There are expectations that God has for us as members of his household. And doesn't this make sense? Aren't there expectations of husbands? Isn't there expectation my wife and my son can count on me to lay my life down for them, to provide for them, to protect them, to give them direction? Right? That's, they can count on me to do that. That's my role. It's my responsibility. And it, doesn't my son have responsibilities being my son in my house? Does he responsibility to honor me and to obey our rules and those types of things? Joyfully? Yes, and it's right for me to expect it, Amy and me. And doesn't my wife have role and responsibilities? I mean, isn't it right for me to expect her to love me and to, to respect me and to honor me and to be my partner in life? Not an advocate, 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 oh boy, adversary, thank you. Too many medicines in my brain. Not an adversary, but a partner. Right, a helper, which is the opposite of adversary. Isn't it right for me to expect that from her? And isn't our family operating so much better when we all fill those roles right? Well, there's roles and responsibilities in God's family. And just like in the human family, that's based out of God's image, the church family has some of those that are our masculinity and our femininity make a difference in how we love one another, what our roles and what our responsibilities. And so we find those as member of God's household, but we, we find that we are structured then like a family. We're God's family, we have to act like a family, and we're put together like a family. We respect those roles and responsibilities. Remember men, we talked about uh, our uh, masculine things. Masculinity is, is protective and is directive and, and is productive. That's very nature. That's part of the, how men reflect God's nature and that masculine thing. And, and we have how women are nurturing and they're civilizing, right? How we have the that feminine uh, qualities that, that women reflect, that beauty and power of God through that. And that when we come together, as the two become one, we find this amazing bond, how the, the church or the family reflects God. Well, they have that in the church too. We're structured in a very similar way. And so we're going to read about those in chapter 3. Um, actually, let's back up a little bit. Verse uh, Chapter uh, Chapter 2, verse 8, it says, Therefore I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and disputing. Right? There's responsibilities for men in Christ. You're to reflect 
your faith and your sonship by how you live. And, and look at how that is, uh, how that reflects how a man is supposed to be uh, directive. We're supposed to be one taking action. We're not waiting for the world to be kind to us. We're lifting up holy hands. We're praying for the world. We're protective in that, aren't we? We're praying for the good of all people, the protection of their souls and the protection of our families and the protection of the church. I would say it, it, how we've, it's even productive. This is men going out and doing something of value. Like men are supposed to serve God and their roles in the church through this reflecting God's masculine nature in an amazing way. And women are the same through their feminine nature. Look at, there's a different set here uh, for women. It says, I want the women to dress modestly, with decency, with propriety, with adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or with gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds and appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Why would there be different lists? Does God have two different standards? No. He's saying, men, I want you to reflect my image and honor me as men, and women, I want you to reflect my image and honor me as in your feminine ways. Right? To, with that virtue and that, that nurturing and, and that civilizingness that, that femininity brings into the world, honor God with that in the church. There's a space for all of us. So it would be structured that way. And so now, with an understanding that, that God respects masculinity and femininity in the church, we read verse 11, which can be a controversial passage. But we have to deal with it, right? Even if it rubs us wrong, it's in God's word. So let's read what it says. It says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. Uh, she must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Then Adam was not the one who was deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with propriety. Now, I know that's a, that's a weird passage, isn't it? That's a passage that's been misabused, misused and abused by the church and by lots of people throughout time. And so I understand that's been contorted in our whole how we look at that. But scripture here is not being mean to women. That's not the point. The focus, in fact, is not on women. That's not the focus at all. Look in context. What is Paul talking about? What is he encouraging Timothy to do? Well, he says, this is how I want God's family to be structured. And so he tells us that what he's talking about, he's setting up talking about the structure of church. And he's going to start with church authority. All right? how do I know that? Well, look, it says, uh, verse uh, 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority. You know that word authority? You know what the Greek word is? Exousia. Where we get our American word, English word, executive. And where does he talk about that? In the very next passage, verse 3, or chapter 3, it says, um, here's a trustworthy saying, whoever uh, aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. He's going to talk about a role in the church called overseer, which is an executive role. And he says this role is reserved, is to be reflective of God's uh, masculinity. He desires this masculine leadership in this role, overseer. So let's look at what is that role, overseer. We find that role several places in the New Testament. Peter talks about this in his first epistle. He says this, Therefore I exhort the elders, presbyters, amongst you to pastor the flock of God amongst you exercising oversight. That's God's command to the pastors, right? I exhort the elders. And so you see that there's three Greek words that are in that passage, presbyteros, poiemen, and episcopus. Two of those probably sound real familiar, don't they? Presbyterians. How about episcopalians? Those are from the Greek words that talk about uh, the roles or the responsibilities of this, of this particular title. Now, we call them pastor, right? Shepherds, uh, poiemen literally means shepherd, to shepherd the flock, poiemen, to pastor. 
So there are three Greek words that talk about the role of this executive place in the church. And the three words that talk about it are presbyterus, which means elder, poiemen means pastor or shepherd, and episcopus means overseer. Right? And so the work of that executive role is described by these three words. And that's what Paul is talking about here. I don't expect a woman to, uh, to take this role. Right? So you can call it, sometimes in Scripture, they, instead of saying pastor, uh, uh, overseer, elder, they just use one of the terms. They call him the overseer, the executive. But it's all three of those are tied together. In fact, that's not just the only passage in the New Testament where those three Greek words are used together to describe the work of the elder or the pastor. It's all the same title. It's all the same, it's all the same responsibility. It is the role of the church leader. And you look at what God expects from the church leader is, is described by each of those words because those words were describing the responsibility. For the elder, the elder is supposed to provide provision. Elders literally means old guys as somebody who's going to be established and wise. It is the role of an elder to be able to, to bring stability in the church and wise counsel, good teaching, right? To, to provide excellent teaching. That's why one of the responsibilities you see there is to be able to teach well. Elders provide for the congregation. Just like a child isn't supposed to provide for their parents, the congregation isn't to be the one providing for the leadership. It is the leadership, the elders, to provide for the congregation, the children of God. Wisdom, counsel, stability. Pastors, that shepherd. The role fundamentally is to protect. Right? What did Jesus say? A good shepherd will do what? Lay down his life for his flock. That's what he said. A good shepherd is going to feed the flock. He's going to lay down his life for it. going to protect it. Protect it from what? Bad doctrine. Bad teaching. Uh, uh, Bad actions in the church, right? To protect us from, from just uh, all kinds of things, both internal threats and external threats. You think about a shepherd. What does he do? Spend most of his time keeping the sheep alive, right? He, he makes sure that they're fed, makes sure they don't die of neglect, they're protected from neglect. He also makes sure they're protected from the wolves. And it's the job of the pastor to do that, to care for the flock, protecting it, even at great cost to himself. And then you have the last one, the overseer, right? And the overseer's job is... It's basically direction. The word executive is there, right? To be able to provide that just like a husband in the home is to provide provision and protection and direction. The pastors in the church are to provide provision, protection, direction to make sure the church is managed well. The people that the ministries are happening so that the church can be healthy and growing. The responsibility falls on someone's shoulders. The buck stops somewhere and it stops with the pastor, the elders, the overseer. Now in the past, starting with uh, the church really kind of franchised after uh, the Council of Nicaea when Constantine became a Christian and be, uh, the church was now the official church of Rome. The church then divvied up these responsibilities to different groups, right? They had groups of elders, which were kind of lay leaders, right? Would, would kind of provide wisdom and counsel to a church. You'd have professional clergy become pastors. They were shepherds for the flock, right? They would do that thing. And then you'd have bishops over the, that would kind of oversee the work of the church. That wasn't sinful at all. In fact, that was just taking what God said his church needed. These were the roles, responsibilities for church leadership. And they said, all right. And the Romans were really good at delegating. And so they set up this great structure in which all of those things took place. And the church grew and it was fantastic. But the crazy thing is we're independent Christian church, right? We don't have churches all over. We're not franchised, right? We're a small church. And so in our church, our elders are pastors. Our pastors are overseers. Our overseers are elders. It's one title, just like it was in the early church. This is how we operate. Now, I want you to look at that. Provision, protection, direction. 
for church leadership? What is that? God's desire for the church. That's what he wants his leadership to provide. Provision, protection, direction, which reminds us a little bit of, I don't know, provision, protection, and direction. It's masculinity. Right? This is how one of the things, men are productive, directive, protective, part of how we reserve God. Isn't it interesting that then he would call this role, just like he calls husbands to do this? He calls church leaders to this very same role. It's not different. If you want to understand why God desires masculine church leadership, you have to understand the family. Just like he desires husbands to lay down their lives for their wives, not the other way around. Just as he desires husbands to make sure the family is provided for, he doesn't want to put that burden on the wife. He's to provide the home so that she can make a home. Right? God has designed, he says, I want masculine church leadership, but that's not enough. See, in the next passages, we're going to find that God actually designed sacrificial masculine leadership, just like he does in the home. Husbands are to do what for their wives? Lay down their lives for them, purify them, help them to grow in faith and faithfulness. Do everything they can to lift their wives up so their wives are fully supported and safe and secure to do everything and, and fully uh, uh, supported to do everything that God created them to be. In the same way, church leadership should be sacrificial. The elders, the pastors, it's not about getting our way. It's a making sure that, that, that God's children are fully provided for, protected, able to do and to live the lives that God has called them to live. It's sacrificial, even if it costs you something. Now, to help with this sacrificial leadership, you know, we, we find that uh, that's in there. I know that in our culture sometimes this is, this is very difficult. And, and so um, there are those who would say, and, and I was one of them uh, for a while, that say, well, wait a second, what about Galatians 3.28? Remember Galatians 3.28 was one of our memory verses earlier this year, so I hope you do. It says uh, where Paul writes, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Does that mean that there's no such thing as masculine later? leadership in the church or in the home? Well, let's take a look at Galatians 3.28. What was the purpose of Galatians? It was a book written to the church at Galatia who was struggling with Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians not getting along. The Jewish Christians were looking down their nose at Gentile Christians saying, you have to become Jewish in order to become a real follower of, of our Messiah. And the Gentile Christians were looking down their nose at the Jewish believers and being like, Jesus did away with all of those things. Why would we have, you know, you should be like us. And Galatians was written to say, listen, uh, we're one in Christ. You are all one in Christ Jesus. The purpose is not a denial of race. In fact, who made the Jews? Whose idea was it? God's. God's idea. He called Abraham. Right? God's idea. He says, I want you to go to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God's not saying there's not such a thing as there's different cultures. That's why at the church, we go to every single culture. And if you go to here in the United States, church looks one way. If you go to Africa, it's going to look a little different, but it's going to be the same family, right? We're not about a cultural uh, thing. It's, we're not making people into our culture. That's why it says, you know, there's neither slave nor free. It's not a denial of the fact that there's rich people and poor people. Scripture talks about that all the way through. It says there's obligations that we have to one another. And sometimes our economic status matters. And we need to honor God in our economic status, not deny our economic status, but to, to glorify him in it. And it's the same way that it says that there's no male or female. He's not saying that there's no such thing as male or female. Who came up with the idea of male and female? God, in the beginning, before the fall, this was even before sin. He made us in his image, male and female, so we could reflect him accurately through masculinity and femininity. And he's got, he, he wants us to reflect in that way. 
In fact, if you want to see what this passage is about, it's not about denying all of these structures, which some people have, have abused the gospel to make it into a social change agent. But it's not about that. But Galatians, the purpose of Galatians, where he says, you want to one in Christ Jesus, look at the very next passage in that. He says, there's no, there's no male or female, all one in Christ Jesus. Why? Because if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. The point of Galatians 3 right there is telling us that, that we are to be united, that there is an equity in our importance, that, that Jews are no more valuable in God's kingdom than Gentiles, that, that men are no more valuable in God's kingdom than women, that rich people are no more valuable in God's kingdom than poor people. That's what it's telling us, that we are Abraham's seed. We are part of the promise if we are in Christ. And so I think that's a principle that we should carry back to this passage. That when God talks about gender, our society has taught us this horrible thing that if, if men and women aren't exactly the same, then we can't be equal. That's one of the craziest, most horrible lies. God said, I made you different for a reason. I want you to reflect me. But don't you dare think that one is better than the other. Because you're equally my children. But he does say now that in leadership, then he wants it to be masculine, right? Well, some people would say then, and I was one for a time, but say, wait a second, okay, if Galatians isn't, uh, isn't speaking ab- about the, you know, we should undo masculine and femininity, then maybe this passage in Timothy, what is it? maybe it's uh, cultural. Maybe it's a command that Paul gave to Timothy because in Ephesus, there was an issue that was happening that needed to be addressed, and so he puts these commands in Ephesus. Well, let's look at Ephesus, right? Remember where Ephesus was? Ephesus was right there right right on the seacoast, it was a city that was founded by Amazonian warrior, uh, warriors, women. It was a society that was the center place of this goddess Artemis worship, that one of the eight wonders of the world was built there, right? That was worshipped this feminine, uh, many-breasted goddess of birth, right? And that was served by priestesses, including a high priestess. This was not a society in which women were misrepresented, underrepresented, undervalued? Does that look like a society there that, God, that, through the, that Paul would have to write these things to accommodate the cultural norms of the day? I mean, if there was ever a society, if the gospel was here to undo gender, wouldn't you expect that this would be the very passage, that this is the very church that Paul would write to and say, be exceedingly uh, uh, egalitarian in how you operate. That's what you would expect him to say in this society. But instead, he goes the other way. Probably because in this society, because of the culture, the paganism that was there and the way that people had worshipped in that society, it led them to bring that paganism religion into God's family. And God says, my family is not structured like that. And so we would say, why masculine leadership in the church? Because we're God's family. We'd be structured like God's family, like any family, that, that there are roles for a husband and there are roles for wife and there are roles for children they are beautiful and wonderful. Not because we agree with it, not because it matches with our understanding of what culture is right and wrong, because God says, this is what I want, this is reflecting me. So you want to have only two institutions. Just honor me in this. In fact, if we want to say, was, was this command that, that he gives cultural? Well, I would say no, because he also, he appeals to creation. Look what it says there in uh, verse 11. Women should learn in quietness and submission. I do not permit a woman to... to uh, have authority over a man, to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Why? Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. He appeals to creation. Why would he appeal to creation if this was something that was just cultural? He says, this is how God designed it. This is how I made it. 
Because what happened at creation? God made them male and female in his image. In the image of God, he created them. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's part of his design. And so Paul points them back to creation, and then he gives a warning. In verse 14, he says, listen, there is a God's creation, but there, is a, there are consequences when we ignore God's creation. And that's what he's talking about, verse 14. He said, and Adam was not the one who became the sinner, but woman uh, um, was deceived and became the sinner. He's not saying, he's not bashing women, saying women are somehow inferior or don't have good judgment or anything like that. He's saying God made a design for creation. Men were supposed to be productive and directive and, and all those types of things. Women were supposed to be nurturing and were supposed to be cultivating and culture, all that kind of stuff. What happened when Adam and Eve denied God's design? When Eve made the decision, right? When Adam didn't step up and protect her, when Adam was passive and, didn't, and, and saw Eve there standing with the apple and he didn't say anything. I don't even know if it was an apple. It's probably something different, right? But what happened? This happened. Death happened. I mean, I had spent all last week in bed most of the time without a voice because there's sin and sickness entered the world with death and all this destruction. This is a warning for us. It says, listen, the church needs to be structured how God designed it because there are consequences that we see even in nature when we, did, we ignore God's design. But then that next passage God, Paul chose about that we're not supposed to be looking down like we can't make this a gender war. Like some people and some Christians and some pastors even have used this passage to beat women's brows and say, see, women sinned first, so therefore, women, you shouldn't talk in the church or have any authority, You're, right? They've used this that way. So Paul adds the next past chapter there, next uh, verse to help us with that. He says, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with propriety. Now, I know in our language or English, that can sound kind of weird. It sounds like a woman's going to be saved if she gives birth to a kid. That's ridiculous, right? That goes against the entire gospel. We're saved by grace or faith and all that kind of stuff, that there's no male or female. We are all Abraham's seed. What it happens if we believe in Christ, right? Galatians. What is it talking about? Well, let me think. Eve is the first one that brought sin in this world and death, but who was the one who brought the Savior into the world without the use of any biological male? Mary. See, God redeemed Womankind. Mankind could not be saved. We also ate from that tree, right? Mankind did too. But we could not be saved if there wasn't a Savior who was born a human. Aren't we glad that there are women? Isn't it amazing that there are those amongst us who are able to do something that men can't do? To birth and bring forth a child? Women are saved, and, and so we can't look down at, uh, at femininity and say it's somehow weaker or less than. The salvation of the world can be credited to a faithful woman who said, yes, may it be done, just as you had said. And so women will be saved through childbearing, through the, the birth of the Savior, Jesus Christ. But there is a qualification. If we even continue in faith, holiness, and propriety. If you want to be God's children, you want to be part of that family, you want to be saved by the Savior, it requires something of us. Male and female. And so God desires Masculine church leadership, not because men are somehow better than women or more qualified than women or anything else, is to reflect God. And the role that he has set up, he says, I want this to be like a family. So men, I want you to act like it. Women, I want you to act like it. Then look at this. There's a place for women in the church too. What are women supposed to do? He says, you be quiet. Why? You're supposed to have the attitude of, a, of a, a learner. That the church is a place that women are supposed to be at and learning and active, participating in. This is not a religion that casts women to the outer courts. 
It was not a faith that God says, now sisters and brothers come together, let's learn, and why learn? So that you can be changed and apply it. And so we say that God has a role for church leadership, and that role is very similar to the role of a husband, right? And just like not all men are husbands, right, ladies, not all men are qualified to be a husband. Not all men are going to be mature. Not all men are going to be selfless. Not all men are going to be loving, right? I hope, ladies, that, that you are very selective in who you allow to be your husband. Just as not all men are qualified to be husbands, not all men are qualified to be in church leadership. This isn't just male domination of the church. It's a role that we get to voluntarily fill. Not all men are to be called pastors and elders. So what are those qualifications? Verses 3 through 11. And you'll see that in those pastor, elders, overseers are to lead just like husbands in faith and love. Verses 1 through 7, it says, Here's a trustworthy saying, Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, without, uh, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see to his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? His family. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the judgment of the devil. He, may, uh, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace into the devil's trap. That's a good description. Wouldn't that be a great description, ladies, of somebody to look for as a husband? Mature, capable, right? Uh, established, right? Selfless, good character. And that's who we in the church are supposed to look for for those who are going to serve as pastor, elders, and, and, and our overseer. Spiritual maturity, right? Just like an elder would have maturity. Supposed to look for that. Supposed to have competence, able to feed, able to do. Look in the, can he actually raise his own family? Right, can he do this? Does he have godly character? Just like an overseer, don't you want your, your, your CEO to have a good character, not be a slime ball? In the body of Christ, church leadership has those qualifications. And notice the test. It's the family. Why is the family the test? Because it's a very similar role. The family is just a microcosm of what the church is. If a man is not a good husband and father in his own home, he has no business being a pastor and elder and overseer in the church. This is not, and I tell you, some men are good at tricking people. You can be a politician. You can look really, really good on the outside. But I tell you what, you can't fake. You can't fake family. Because they see you all the time. They're with you all over the long haul. Do you see a man whose wife is growing in faithfulness, who feels loved and honored and respected and safe and secure in her home, that knows that her husband will lay down his life for her at any given moment and all the time consistently and continually provide for her, protect her? A man who is a solid leader that she respects and he has her respect? You don't get to fake that. Do you see a man who's able to take uh, godless little children and help them grow up to be godly adults and people? If he can do that with his own home, then maybe he's trustworthy with the church. But I tell you what, if his home's a mess, why on earth would we trust him with the holy family, God's church, God's family? That's why it's the test. And that's one of the reasons, too, that uh, we find that uh, it's so important when we choose an elder. It can't just be, or a pastor, the guy looks nice, or he's, he's, he can talk well. Right? You have to look and say, just like a woman wouldn't marry just any man, be selective. Look at these guys. Evaluate them. Do they have the kind of character, the competence, the ability, the proven track record that you could say, yeah, we'll let you lead this. Now, into helping the pastors, we find that there's also help. 
Just like a husband can't do everything in his home, we find that there's a role called deacons and deaconesses. We read about them, their qualifications in the next verse. Verse 8, it says, in the same way, all right, qualifications, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith, the clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then there is, if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. And in the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate, trustworthy, and everything. It's interesting that he makes a special effort to show that there's a place in this role of leadership for both men and women. Right? That's why in our church we have both deacons and deaconesses. What are those? What's the role of a deacon and deaconess? They're holy project managers. There's, there's leaders for ministry. We find them first in Acts 8. There was a ministry that was happening in the church and the, and the, and the elders that were there that were the apostles. They're like, we, don't have, we can't do this. We don't have all the skills and the time to take care of this. So what do they do? They said, let's appoint some deacons. Let's get some project, holy project manager to take this project. And so they look for people that have good character and have great competence. And they said, we're going to give you authority to be able to lead this ministry, right? So John and Peter and Paul and James, they weren't always, you know, sticking their nose in the jobs of, of Stephen and, and the other ones that, they were, that were serving. They weren't saying, well, uh, they weren't micromanaging. They were saying, we gave you authority. They had the authority of the church. And it's the same way here. There, we've got a lot of women in, in places of authority, and a lot of men in places of authority in the church that operate ministry, we have men's ministry, women's ministry, prayer ministry, right? We have our children's ministry and life group ministry and all of these things that, that need to take place that, uh, you know, that there are competent people in the church to lead those. And there are a lot of leaders in the church to do that. And so it says to select them well. Deacon isn't a title of um, pride. It's not, you don't become a deacon because you've been at the church for so many years, Right? It's not because, it's like you have the ability and the character and the competence to handle a ministry of responsibility. And that's who deacons and deaconess are supposed to be. So they're supposed to help the leadership in serving with an attitude of respect. Not to subvert the leadership of the church, but to help it. So we'll come alongside. And who are the elders and the pastors supposed to serve? And, and the deacons and the deaconesses? Well, God's children. Just like in a home. Who are the husband and wife supposed to serve? The children. Isn't that why you raise children up in grace and knowledge and the fear of the knowledge of the Lord? Because it's not really about the parents anymore, right? We're passing on to the next generation. This is the same way in the church. It's not about the pastor. It's not about the, the deacons or deaconess. It's about you. You are God's children because God says you are. He has a ministry through you. And I say this, that we mature just as a child's job is to mature and to grow up. We are to mature. We're supposed to grow up in faith. And we do that through ministry. We had an entire series not very long ago called Say Yes. And if you want to go back and about why that's important, why we serve, through serving others, we grow in maturity. That's what it's all about. It's about you as a children of God being brought up in faith so you are set free in this world so that you can build the faith from continent to continent. In fact, that's what Jesus tells us, children, that he wants us to do. Matthew 20, 18 through 19, this is called what we call the Great Commission. Jesus said to his disciples, go make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. This is the main thing that God told us to do. As a husband, as a father, if I leave my house in the morning and I ask my son to do something, it's probably important, and I'm going to check on it when I get home, right? If I say, Thomas, before I come home, I'd like the dishwasher empty. What do you think I'm going to check when I get home? Dishwasher, because it's a priority for me, right? He's got that responsibility. Jesus left and he says, I want you to go to all nations. I want you to be prosperous. I want you to be fruitful. I want you to go to all nations and I want you to, to multiply. I want to make disciples of all those people. 
And so I want you to do it. Bring them to faith, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then I want you to, to help them grow up as well. Teach them how to obey all things. This is our role. This is what God is going to ask them. When he comes back, he's going to ask each of us, his children, did we do it? But you know, this great commission reminds me of our first commission. You know what the first commission was to the very first family? This is the great commission to God's church family. The first commission to the very first family was this. When God created Adam and Eve, this is what he told them. He said, be blessed. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. In fact, God's blessing was for them to be fruitful and increase in number. Isn't that very similar to the Great Commission? Go to all nations, fill the earth, right? Bake disciples, be fruitful, subdue it, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. God's family and the church have a very similar commission to the family itself because church is family. So we are called to do this together. Now, one of the problems that we have with the structure of church oftentimes is we've designed church to look a lot like um, human structures, that human sets up. Remember, people get to design anything we want, right? Other than church and family. We have all kinds of institutions. And how do people historically, traditionally, and uh, reliably set up structures? We set them up like this. You have the group of people on the bottom. The group of people's job on the bottom is to basically do their work to support the people, the management that's going to be in the middle, right? And the management's job, you get all their quotas and do their things that they're supposed to do, job is to support the leadership so the leadership can go and then be successful, right, and then maybe make the, the company expand. Isn't that how it works? It doesn't just work with corporations. It works with, I don't know, everything that people set up. How about things like government? Doesn't this look a lot like a lot of our government where people, we pay our taxes and we do our things. Why? So the bureaucrats can have their programs to do their great things so that, I don't know, the leader in the top can be successful, and then promote whatever the nation's values is, other places. I mean, a great place to look at this, a very human design, uh, I think would be North Korea. Doesn't that explain North Korea a bunch? Right? Human organizations are always seen to structure themselves like this. Even our clubs seem to work like this. But it's not about the will of the 1% at the top. That's not what it's about. It's not about having the executive somehow do better. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciples... If you want to have leadership, you want to be a leader in my church, he says, don't be like the rulers of this world who lord it over other people. What did Jesus say was supposed to be, the church is be structured like how we're supposed to, to, to lead? He turns it upside down. He says, if you want to be the leader of all, if you want to be a, the, the great leader, be the slave. If you want to be a, the best leader, the top leader, the most, be the slave of all. We don't climb up into position of authority in the church. We climb down. We stoop low. This is how we're supposed to be. That's why the husband and the father is not the top of the pinnacle in the church. He is the very base. That's why the father's job is to lay his life down for his family and his children. A great sacrifice to himself, to make decisions that better them, not himself. It's about what's best for them, not what he wills. And it's the same for pastors and elders. That's why pastors and elders, we, we were the first slaves. We get to do things like take out the garbage. We're the ones that have to go and do church discipline. Do you think that's fun? We're the ones that go and, and are meet with people in the midst when they're sick and when they're broken and they're hard. We're the ones that go and challenge the, those on the outside who want to attack the church. We want to serve you. We want to lay down our lives for you so that you can live. That's the call of leadership. And leaders grow so that way we help and support the management, the, 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 the elders, the deacons and the deaconesses so that they are fully equipped to do their job well so that you, the body of Christ, can go and to fill this world so that you can be productive and effective and do everything and live the life that God has designed you to live. The church is here to support you. 
Now take a look at the two different models. The first one, when the American or any church is designed like the first one, it shrinks. Isn't that why the church in, the, in our Western culture is shrunken? We have lots of people that show up at church, feel like they're the mass, and your job is to, to show up and to pay and to do all those things, right, so you can support the ministries of the church, so that way the ministries can support the pastor of the church, and the pastor can then go and make disciples. The pastor and sometimes we would say missionaries. I'll tell you, I'm a, I'm a pretty decent disciple maker. I can make up to five disciples at one given time, right? I, I can't do six. I tried, and it, uh, it led to hair loss, right? But five I can do up to five any given time, and that's if three of them are fairly well, three, three men are fairly well along in their faith, right? I could take three more mature guys that are, that are getting close to the end of the discipleship need, and I can have two guys that are fairly young in their faith that are just new believers. It takes a lot of time, and it takes me years to make another disciple, a guy who's going to replicate faith, okay? So let's say I stay here for my entire ministry. Praise God, I, I hope that I get to. That would be an awesome privilege. But let's say that I do. I will maybe make a, a total of, of uh, 20 to 40 disciples, 20 to 40 in my entire life, which is, I think, pretty cool. But if I do 20 or 40 people disciples, I didn't even replicate this church. I'm not even 10%. Right? Then who's going to be the church of the next generation? And if it takes about 200 Christians for one of them to step up and become another pastor, there would be four of me before we even got one other guy who's going to replicate what I'm doing. Do you see why the church in the Western world is falling apart and shrinking? And look at the other way. If we as elders, if we lay our lives down for you, we pray for you, support you, provide everything you need that, so that you can be successful, we help, we're, we're assisted by these great, awesome leaders, these deacons and deaconesses to help build effective ministries to support you so that you can become the maturing children of God you're supposed to be, the kingdom of God, the gospel of God, proclaim all throughout the world pretty rapidly. You know, if every one of you only made one disciple in your entire life, just one, you would outpace me by a five to one, right? You would make so many more disciples. It would take five of my lifetimes to just do that. If you just made one, this is how the kingdom of God transforms the world. This is the structure of the kingdom of God. We cannot have all the elders and deacons and deaconesses with that first pyramid. We cannot have that. Is, that is a horrible way to design God's family. It doesn't reflect him well. But if we are the inverted, the transformational, this world will be transformed. And that's exactly what we saw in the first century, wasn't it? It took 100 years for the church to grow from a tiny group of guys becoming a, a mighty powerful influence in culture. It took another 300 years before it became the predominant faith in the, in the Western world. Transformational. This is how it's built. So today we talked about a lot of things. In fact, I hope you see how all of those messages kind of tie together. Probably took me a little bit longer today. All right. How do you apply it? Well, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to find your identity in God's family. Your main identity, the reason that God made you is so you could know him and the reason he wants you to be, he wants to be part of his family. So find your identity in his family. You're his child. Find that here. Help us, allow us to help you grow up and mature in faith. And as you do that, then I would say this, fill your role in God's family. Act as God's children. Learn, be ready to grow up, be ready to be disciplined by God, not punished, disciplined. As he, as he grows you and changes you and shapes you into a more mature believer so that way you can present the gospel in this world in a beautiful and a powerful way. That You can be his disciples that build his disciples. How do you uh, apply that? Well, this week maybe there's some next steps, some small things that you can do to find your identity in God's family. 
or to fulfill that role. So I invite you, take out your connection card on the back side. I've got some very simple next steps, small things that you can do. First thing that you can do, maybe is you want to memorize Galatians 2.20. What a great place to start is that you have been born again into a new family. The life you now live, even in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God. All these things, even if it goes counterintuitive to, to even your own desires, know that you are now part of God's home. Maybe let that word of God help you so that you can live as God's child. Or maybe what you would like to do is read 1 Timothy. You want to read how, this, how a church is to be structured? Read 1 Timothy. Or how about this? Maybe for you, it's time to say yes to ministry, to mature through ministry as God designed it. That's why we have the whole say yes ministry board. If you're not serving in ministry, serve. Let us help you, prepare you to grow up in faith. Most of those ministries are very easy. There's like, most of them are like a couple times a month, like an hour a month. Or they're not terribly huge as far as commitment, but they're massive in their terms to be able to transform you and to be able to act as God's children in this world. Maybe you say, I'm ready to do that. How about this? Maybe uh, you attend our next membership class. Now, I was sick this week, and I didn't have a voice after Wednesday, and so uh, I wasn't able to talk to my staff about setting the date. So this was my best guess. Uh, it was on November 3rd, uh, which is what it should have been on the calendar. So if you would like to, uh, what I'm going to do is on Tuesday, if anybody who wants to be in our next membership class, we're going to set it, make sure, confirm the time on our calendar. And uh, if you sign up for this, I'll let you know what our next membership class will be. So that way you can join us. That should be great. Now, if you have another commitment to make, please let me know. If you've got a prayer request, write it down. Remember, one of my great privileges to serve you every week is to pray for you. If I know how, even better. So write that down. Let me pray with you this week. And that'll be great. Now it's time we're going to bring our commitment, our, our, uh, our service to a close. I'm going to ask uh, that you would take these commitments along with your, um, your tithes and your offerings and drop them in the offering basket as it is passed. Allow me to, to offer a prayer blessing over you. Father God, thank you for this, your children, this church family. It is a, a, an incredible privilege to serve them. And I thank you, Father, for, for each and every one of them and the lights that you have made them in this culture in this world, that you've drawn them out of darkness and you've given them a new identity into your family. Help us, Father, to grow together as a healthy family that represents you well. Father, give me the peace and the strength and the, as well as all of the other elders and pastors in our church to lay down our lives for them in a way that's fitting and right, with wisdom and, and good direction, with the right heart, not despising your children but loving them. Father, we pray for our deacons and our deaconesses. Would you empower them, equip them, to lead well in a way that honors you, that reflects your goodness, and empowers the ministry that helps your family grow. So Father, we pray for these, your children. Build them up as your ministries, ministers in this community. And I pray that they would carry the light back to their homes and to their offices and to their neighborhoods in a way that doesn't just touch our community, but Father, transforms it just as you transformed us. Father, we pray that you would take these commitments that we've made today, that you would bless them and help us transform us even these commitments. We pray for our offerings that we're bringing to you, that you would bless them, multiply them, use them for the provision of your family as well as for the proclamation of your gospel. Lord, we pray all of these things in the beautiful name of Jesus, our Savior.
as the other voices fade, I can hear you calling me Jesus, and it's worth it just to know you. Done great things. You and